scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to give us insight and life from the Word. You prayed that um, we would be sanctified in the truth, and that happens from the hearing of the Word because your Word is truth. Convict us and convince us of its power, of its truth, of its meaning. Let us leave differently than the way we came in here. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it feels good to be uh, back in the pulpit, and I have to admit that as much as it's, an, it's nice having a break every now and again, I miss being up here. Uh, not because I like to hear the sound of my own voice, but I miss preaching to you. I miss looking at your faces, and I miss communicating the word of God. So I'm glad to be back in the pulpit um, we're talking this morning, we're jumping back into Luke for a little bit. Um, incidentally, this summer, um, we'll be leaving Luke for a good portion of the summer because we're going to be not only casting our vision as a church, we'll have a vision casting Sunday, but we'll also be talking about and unpacking that vision probably over the course of half a dozen sermons or so as we go forward as a church and even look towards becoming a particularized church. And if you don't know what that means, that just means becoming an official local church. Right now we're a church plant. So all of those things we'll be talking about and we'll probably leave Luke. But right now we're back in Luke. Um, and um, here in this passage, this is a passage you've probably heard hundreds of times. There are few phrases which capture the Christian life, the essence of the Christian life, more than the word self-denial. If you go to verse 23, it'll show it. Self-denial. Now you're probably thinking, uh, that's not a word, Jordan, that's two words. Uh, in the Greek, it's one word. And what it means is to renounce or disregard oneself to act in a completely selfless way. The word is a radical denial of and renunciation of self-centeredness. And so this morning I want to make an utterly stupendous claim to you that the essence, the meaning, the epicenter of Christian living is self-denial. This is the essence of the Christian life, self-denial. And Jesus is on the heels of talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. So in verse 22, 
he ended up the he he wrapped up the previous section by saying that the son of man had to be portrayed and be crucified and on the third day rise again and it's in this greater context of Jesus calling the disciples to an apprenticeship an apprenticeship with him so if you're a disciple of Christ if you're a follower of Christ you are in an apprenticeship with Jesus you're walking with Jesus, you're learning from Jesus, you are emulating Jesus, you are hearing the words of Jesus, and you are trying to be like Jesus. Now, some people dispute that. Oh, we can never be like Jesus. Actually, we're commanded to. 1 John chapter 2 says, If anyone says they are in God, they must walk as this one walked. If anyone says to be a Christian, if anyone says to love God, you must walk as this one walked. And so Jesus calls us to an apprenticeship with him, to walk with him, and to live with him, and to emulate him. And part of discipleship means this call to radical renunciation of self. And it's just the opposite of where we're at as a culture. Now, I would say it's where the world has always been, but we're in a place in our late modern era of Western culture, where we're really good at just the opposite of self-denial, which is self-indulgence. I mean, we're really good at it as a culture. Everything we're exposed to every single day just reinforces the idea to go ahead and indulge your passions and your appetites. Go for it. In fact, our culture doesn't even say it's a bad thing. Our culture says it's a good thing right? Culture that has propped up and glorified, of course, just the opposite of the Word of God. We're not surprised by that. That's what the world does. <clears throat> but where it becomes tricky, where it becomes a problem, is when the church starts doing that. Is when the church starts saying, yo, yeah, it's good to indulge ourselves. When the message of self-denial is lost, we say, well, what's an example? How did Jesus deny himself in his own life? Well, obviously, the cross is what we're talking about. Well, we're talking about a cross-shaped life, if you can, we can put it that way. A, a, a cruciform life, a life that is formed by the crucifixion. The idea of Jesus' giving of himself, which was hard. It's a hard thing for Jesus to do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me is the cup of God's wrath against sin he said let this cup pass from me nevertheless not my will but thy will be done and that's essentially what it means to be a Christian is we are struggling every day against our own will versus God's will there's this tug of war every single day a daily wrestling a daily struggle and so Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, which means if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now Matthew has the exact same phrase, but omits the word daily. Luke has Jesus saying daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This passage is one example 
And one proof, in fact, it may be one of the best proofs that the gospel does not come from men. Because no one would ever use a statement like this to recruit people for a brand new world religion. This is proof that the gospel, the scriptures, and what Jesus is saying is not man-made. It has not been invented by human beings. It comes from God because surely nobody would start a new organization that way. Okay, everyone, gather around. The first thing you have to do is take up your cross. The cross was a gruesome image, a grotesque image, an instrument of death and execution and torture. Nobody would say that. You know, the, the disciples, Jesus, we're trying to pack this place out. What are you thinking? <laughs> Don't say that. You know, right? But this is, this is from God. This isn't from man. This is from heaven. Because no man would think of saying that to recruit people, to get people to buy into it. The cross was a grotesque image. But the cross is central because it is a symbol of the atonement without which we cannot be saved. The cross is central. The cross has to be central. And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get us to wrap our arms around the cross. Embrace the cross. Because without the crucifixion, there is no salvation. And without the cross, there is no life. There's no life without the cross. I love the lyrics to the hymn, the old rugged cross. You don't have to sing it, but just by a show of hands, anyone know that's, that hymn? It goes like this, for those of you who either forgot it or don't know it. It says, on a hill far away, I could sing it, but I won't. On a hill far away, I thought about singing it, but I, I said I'm not gonna. Uh, just a quick side note, I grew up as a Pentecostal, and I was a Pentecostal preacher for 15 years, and in the denomination I grew up in, it was expected that when you came up to preach, you sang a song. And I did every single Sunday. I got up to preach and sang a song. <laughs> Not going to happen, all right? <laughs> it says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. The cross is not to be rejected by us as Christ's disciples, it's to be embraced. It is a thing of disdain from the world, but for disciples, the cross ought to be a thing that we cling to, that we embrace, and yes, even as Christ said, we take up daily. So Luke transforms the cross into this metaphor by saying we have to take it up daily, and it means we not only embrace the cross that Jesus died on, but we also embrace a personal cross. And so taking up the cross means, you ready for it? It is the utmost in self-denial. That's what it means to take up the cross. Now some of us, it's typical for us to often say, 
you know, my job, right? I you hate your, you got a your crummy job or your boss is a real, you know, he's, he's a real taskmaster or she's a real taskmaster. And you say, you know, that's my cross to bear. And we know what we mean when we say that, but that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about trials in general or things in your life that you have to endure but you don't really want to. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's saying is following him comes with a price. Yes, salvation is free, but discipleship costs us. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs us. It costs to be a disciple. I've shared with you, and I'll share a little bit more. I don't want to tell too much of the story. Some of you know this, but um, in my upbringing in Los Angeles, um, there was a time when my family fell apart and my home was broken. And I lived in the inner city and always lived in apartments. We never, never lived in homes. We kind of rented and went from apartment to apartment. And our home life fell apart. And I became, I just got involved in a local uh, a, a gang, a street gang, for six years of my, of my teenage and adolescent years until my early, late teens, early 20s. And uh, they didn't just welcome you in. You had to prove yourself. You had to act a certain way. You had to do certain things. And when they did certain things, you had to do certain things with them. And it, but, but the rewards were that you were, there was this acceptance you had. And you had people that came around you and they protected you. And when things got kind of hairy, you had someone who had your back. But you had to be willing to go along with the group. And after a while, it became what you wanted to do. So at first you were afraid because you did things that were you know, kind of wild, but after a while, because you had these group of guys that were there for you, who were going to go down with you, rise and fall with you, it just became something you embraced. But there was a, there was a cost for it. And that's a negative image in some ways, but the positive image is that with Christ, yes, there's a cost to discipleship, and it's not a light cost. It's not an easy thing but there is a great reward for it. So taking up the cross is the utmost in self-denial. John Calvin is my favorite theologian. For all that we know about him, if you know anything about Calvin, and we, for, he's famous for his doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty, but the essence of Calvin was self-denial. Calvin scholars will talk about this, that he gets a lot of fame for other things, but in reality the epicenter of his theology, because Calvin was a theologian of the gospel, it was all about self-denial. His commentaries, the institutes of the Christian religion, he was a theologian who thought that the Christian life revolved around self-denial. And here's what Calvin says. Listen to this. If we then are not our own, but belong instead to the Lord, it's clear what we must do to avoid going astray. And what our goal must be in every department of life. We are not our own. Let not reason and will, therefore, determine our plans and the things that we need to do. We are not our own. Let us not, therefore, choose our goal or whatever might suit the flesh. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, forget ourselves as much as we can. Ourselves and everything around us, again, we are the Lord's. 
Let us then live and die for him. We are the Lord's. Let his will and wisdom govern all that we do. We are the Lord's. Let every part of our lives be directed to him as to their sole end. What progress that man has made who, knowing that he is not his own, denies his reason, lordship, and dominion over him and surrenders it instead to God. For just as there is nothing which leads to ruin and destruction more surely than self-satisfaction, so also the only haven of salvation is to cease to be wise in oneself and want nothing on one's own account but simply to follow the Lord. This is the meaning of self-denial, which Christ so carefully requires of all of his disciples at the start of their apprenticeship. This emptying of self-centeredness, this renunciation of selfishness, taking up our cross, Self-denial is about living sacrificially. Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Christ was a physical, literal sacrifice on the cross. And when he calls us to take up our cross, he calls us not to die physically, but to be a living sacrifice. Every single day, taking up our cross, dying to self, dying out to self-indulgence and the things that would pull us away from the purposes and the plans of God. And here's the deal. Jesus is not a masochist. He is not admonishing us to embrace pain and suffering for its own sake just because. He's not saying that the mere virtue of pain alone somehow makes you godly. That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is, God has plans and purposes for the world through the church, but the world resists those plans. The world opposes the gospel. The world fights against the truth of God, and because of that, there is hardship for the believer. There's suffering. So when he calls us to bear our cross, it's not just because he thinks there's something good about pain in and of itself. It's because to truly proclaim the gospel, to walk with Jesus means enduring the hardship for proclaiming his name and naming the name of Christ. Some of, have you experienced that? I mean, I would assume, right? If you've been walking with the Lord, sometimes you've, sometime you've experienced some of that. The ridicule, maybe, you know, for praying in a restaurant over your meal or something, the, you know, the eyes staring at you. My youngest daughter and I, we went out to breakfast, and they put us in this weird two-person table in the middle of the entire restaurant. And as we sat down, I mean, we just sat down. You could see people, you know, I mean, we're like, right, we're like center stage. And I thought, well, I'm going to pray over my meal, <laughs> you know bowed my head and prayed, you know, so maybe someone was looking, maybe someone wasn't. That's a light thing, but we experience ridicule, we experience suffering for naming the name of Christ. To bear the cross means to accept the rejection of the world for turning to Jesus and following him. You know, for some things, let me put it this way, saying yes to some things means saying no to other things. Okay, 
So saying yes to Jesus means saying no to the accolades and the acceptance of the world. Can I put it that way? You, it's, it's impossible to have both. Now, it's good to have a good reputation with people, but saying yes to Jesus means saying no to, to the desire that everyone thinks you're great. Following Jesus means that not everyone will love us. Following Jesus and naming the name of Christ means not everyone will think we're great or smart or intelligent. Some people may think you're dumb, ignorant, unintelligent for believing in, the, in fairy tales. It comes with a price. It's a call to a crucified life. So we clearly see the necessity of the cross in verse 23, but that's followed by the axiom of the cross, that the cross is an axiom for living. In verse 24, he says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself or his own soul? It's hard to think of anything more dissonant than a statement like this, especially in today's modern church culture. I'm sorry if it feels like I'm kind of like beating up on popular Christian culture. I don't mean to do that, but I'm just trying to call us to a true gospel faithfulness, and there's a lot of pretenders out there. There's a lot of false gospels out there. There's a lot of false versions of Christ, and it's good for us to know what the true version is, the biblical version. There's a secular gospel of self-fulfillment. There's all of these other things, right? And a lot of modern evangelicalism is not concerned with advancing the kingdom, but rather a very self-referential Christianity. Now, yes, the gospel helps us in many ways. It blesses us. It makes us better people. All of these things. But if that's the only thing that is anchoring us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're missing it somehow. Because it's anchored in self, right? How can Christianity help me, feed me, make me happy, fulfill me? You know, Jesus is saying, <clears throat> if your goal is to get the best out of life, and this is really what this verse is saying, if your goal is to get the best out of life, or to put it as one well-known motivational speaker puts it, your best life now, you're going to lose eternal life. If your goal is to get your best life right now, to get the best life you can possibly live, you're going to lose eternal life. I mean, look at what it says in verse 24. Whoever wants to save his life or preserve his life or minimize suffering, minimize ridicule, minimize pain, minimize discomfort, that's what he's saying, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever pours himself out opens themselves to the suffering and ridicule and hardships that come along with the gospel and naming the name of Christ will actually gain life, not lose it. You gain life by pouring yourself out. By giving your life away, you receive life. And for some reason, we have this idea that everything we do ought to provide us utter fulfillment in everything we do. And deep down, we know this is nonsense. We know that that's not really 
the way life works, but it still controls a lot of the way we live our life. Wanting and being confused sometimes that everything doesn't provide, you know, this utter fulfillment. Right? Change the baby's diapers, not because it provides this great deep sense of joy, but because, well, at least fathers don't. I don't know. Mothers may engage differently, but I, I never enjoyed changing diapers. But I did it because it was my duty. I did it because it was right to do. I did it because it needed to be done. You know, there's all these, um, and, and we hope as we go forward that we start to assess people's gifts because we want people using their gifts. But there are some things that there no gifts can speak to, right? I mean, sometimes the trash just has to be taken out. Someone's got to flip the lights on and, you know, and do things like that. And those are things that just need to be done that don't necessarily provide in and of themselves a great deal of, of, of fulfillment, but knowing that there's a duty being fulfilled that needs to be done is itself fulfilling. I told the story before when I told my pastor, who at the time was not my father. My father planted a church when I was about 23. But at the time I was at a church, and I was 18 or 19, and I told the pastor, I believe I'm called to the ministry. And he said, meet me here on Saturday. Yes. You know, I'm going to, I don't know what was going to happen. I was, you know, going to be given a, a beautiful, you know, massive Bible or something. And it was, a, it was a storefront church, and he said, brother, I need someone to clean this place. I need someone to vacuum, someone to sweep, someone to Windex the windows and clean the toilets, and I don't have anyone. And I said, I'm your guy. I didn't go, oh, you know, it's beneath me. I'm called to ministry. I was excited to do it. And you know what's funny? What's funny about that story is not the story, but people's reactions to the story. Because some people go, hmm, and some people go, oh, right? Because they, there's this contempt, like, oh, how dare he say that? Actually, it was one of the best things for me in ministry. It was, it was the best thing for me. I felt so privileged. I had a key to the church. And boy, did I show up faithfully, and I vacuumed. And it was one of those churches where the, they used pine saw in the bathroom. So it was like the bathroom smelled like pine saw, and I would come home smelling like pine saw. But it had to be done, and I was privileged to do it. And I know it's a funny and silly story, but I think it's, it just illustrates a little bit how not everything is in the spotlight of even gospel glamour. You know, every church, there's their pulpit and there's the plumbing. There's the things that you see, and there's all the things going on behind the scenes that you never see that are necessary, not only to make the church function, but to make the kingdom and all of its movements and activity happen. And all of us are called to those things. Whoever will, wants to save his life, preserve his life, enjoy his best life now, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it or find it. For what will it benefit a person if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? So we have the necessity of the cross, the axiom for living that the cross is, and then third, we have the logic of the cross in verse 25. For what, is it profit a, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? What are you profited by getting all of the things out of life you ever wanted and losing your soul, not having salvation? 
in California, Maribel and I would go to, we would vacation in a city called Cambria. And I don't know, folks who are familiar with California, it's right up about the central coast and it's this beautiful seaside resort. And there's not a lot of young people there and we love that because we could just walk around slowly and kind of just hang out. And it was this beautiful place and it was right next to San Simeon where Hearst Castle is. Hearst Castle is this amazing estate built by William Randolph Hearst, this publishing tycoon, you know, 80 years ago. And at one point it was said he was the richest man on the planet. And you can go to San Simeon two miles away from Cambria and you can tour Hearst Castle. It's so big, it spans 14 miles of coastline, 250,000 acres, and this was a man that had so much money that when he built this home, and it, I mean, it's not just a home, it's a complex, it's an estate, he took pieces of art and decor from all over the planet. Italian marble and Italian statues and paintings, and I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. In fact, the house is weird looking because there's no one design pattern to it. It's, a, it's bits and pieces of the whole world. And this was a man literally who had gained the whole world not literally, but literally in the sense of the trappings of success. He had the whole world at his fingertips. And the house is on a hill, and he built this road up to it. And the road was necessary for all of the caravans of workers who were always carrying stuff up and back down from the house to, to build it. And he had the whole world at his fingertips. All of this power, all of this influence, all of this fame but it didn't buy him life. Because that only comes from embracing the cross. Taking up the cross means not forfeiting our souls, but forfeiting the world. If you want the world, you forfeit your soul. If you want the cross, you forfeit the world. And Paul says it in Galatians 6.14, I boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And this is what it means to be in the world and not of the world. When we take up our cross daily, we're in the world, but there's this disconnection we have from the world. The world is not our God. The world doesn't give us our orders. We take our orders for life from Jesus Christ. There's this disconnection we have with the world. We're in it, but we're not of it because the world has been crucified to us and we've been crucified to the world. In verse 26, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If Christianity dies in America, it'll be because it was embarrassed to death. Not because people hunted us down and arrested us and executed us. It's because people were unable to deal with the embarrassment. Right? He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And the church takes hits from all sides. The media, the academy, the arts. And it's really nothing new. But taking up your cross and denying yourself means never being ashamed to name the name of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross. You're not ashamed 
of the gospel. In fact, Paul says that in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Ridicule is real. Embarrassment are real emotions. But enduring comes with this promise. And Jesus told those who are present in verse 27. But I tell you, most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. Some say this was the transfiguration when Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah standing at either side of him. Some say this was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Scholars and theologians are not exactly positive. Some type of visible, visible expression of the kingdom. But the lesson for us is clear. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test, because that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The victories and the rewards of the kingdom, the crown of life to those who love him. Let's pray. Now, God, our Father, let us come to the cross and embrace it, stretch out our arms and cling to its frame, to own its shame and be comforted by its power to save. Let us name the name of Christ and not be swayed from the changing cultural winds and social mores that shift so quickly underneath our feet. Let us stand firm on the foundation of the cross. Let us cherish the old rugged cross till our trophies at last we lay down. Let us cling, O oh God, to that cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Amen.